This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Last week, I said that this evening, uh, we would be again discussing one of the three major contemporary theological issues that the 20th century postmodern theological relativism has brought us. And the four that we talked about last week were human sexuality, abortion, civic obligations, and identity politics. And I specifically said that this week we would explore if God created male and female, then how, does Christian, how should Christians biblically respond in love to the world's agenda on sex, gender, and marriage? I said that would be the topic for this week's lecture, but I made an audible, which is a football term, changing the play. For those of you that don't play football, I don't play football either, so I don't know why I use the term as if I do. But uh, I did have, I called an audible, and I believe I have scriptural reason to do so. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read the narrative of the sixth day of creation. It reads like this, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the face of the earth, upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Let me read verse 27 again for emphasis. So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Created he them. I think the order in this verse is very important. First, God created man in his image. This is such an important point that Moses repeats it. He says, in the image of God created he them, him. It is after the creation of man created in the image of God that Moses tells us that male and female are distinct. The apex of God's creative work, humanity, is divided into two components, male and female. However, you cannot understand human sexuality, male and female, if you do not first understand the overarching truth that humanity is created in the image of God. You destroy the image of God, and you can then move to destroy the function of that creation. This is exactly what has happened in our modern culture. We first move to destroy the creative offspring of the image of God, and we have now easily moved to destroying the functional components of the human race. Those who advocate for reproductive rights, or call it pro-choice, or simply declare they are pro-abortion, they see this connection. Sometimes they see it a whole lot clearer than Christians do. There's a fundamental fear amongst those who advocate for abortion. There's a fear that if the so-called right is revoked, it will affect the so-called rights of same-sex marriage. I completely agree with their assessment. This is why we, as Christians, must return to recapturing a biblical view 
of the image of God in humanity. If the image can be destroyed, abortion, then so also will its function, male and female. Destroy the image, and you destroy its function. Therefore, this evening, we are going to address the abortion crisis first. Now, I'm not going to provide you with jarring statistics, though the statistics are staggering. I'm not going to relay harrowing stories of death, though those stories are deeply moving. I'm not going to show you pictures of the unborn who have had limbs torn apart, or 4D images of ultrasounds that show just how a little baby is already demonstrating personhood through the exercise of those limbs that some would have torn apart, though those images would certainly coerce your emotions. Tonight, I simply want to approach the issue of abortion from a strictly biblical, which I believe also is a logical argument. And in doing so, in doing so, I hope to show three things this evening. One, our dependence on judicial opinion and legislation has caused the church to view abortion as a political issue and not a theological one. Two, that we have completely lost control of the terms that we use and we accuse others of using. And three, in misunderstanding these terms, we have lost the moral high ground in the abortion debate. As to the first point, I will say much more when we get to that reason later in the lecture, but I, it will serve us well to consider the following scripture that foreshadows just how, the theological, how theological the abortion debate is. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. In this chapter, just one second. Mary Lynn, I've lost my connection here, so I'm going to depend on you. I'm sorry. I'll tell you. So I'll even wake you up when it's time. All right. <laughs> I'm back. Wait, thanks for giving me the Wi-Fi back. I appreciate that, Marilyn. Appreciate that. <laughs> so we're in the book of Romans. In this chapter, Romans chapter 1, in this chapter, Paul provides a description of the effects of a sin the effects a sin ravaged society can have. Listen and imagine the picture that he's painting here. I, I think it might be strangely familiar to our American culture. Here's what Paul says. We're in Romans chapter 1. We're looking there at verse 26. For this cause, the denying of God, his rightful glory, and choosing instead to worship the creation more than the creator. That's this cause. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. This is the first thing I want to point out. Often we consider this verse 
to be an admonition against homosexuality, particularly lesbianism. And it is. It is. But it's not only isolated to that behavior. There's also the understanding of a society's general consensus to reject the natural use of a woman. That word use, don't let it scare you. It carries the idea of being an instrument of purpose or function, and that's important. It's not as just a thing to be used, like we use that word use, but it's something that has a specific purpose. The function is important. Men and women do not have the same function. This is why Paul then addresses men separately in verse 27. Here's what he says, And likewise, also the men. So he says, here's what the women have done. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural, here we see the word, the phrase again, the natural use of the woman. And it begs the question, what is the use of the natural woman? Well, I think that's clearly implied in Genesis 1 and 2, and especially in Genesis 3, verse 20. You'll notice in 3, verse 20, that Eve is finally, this is in Genesis, Eve is finally given a name. It's a name which means, do you remember what Eve means? The mother of all living. We will look at this in more detail later on in a different lecture, but we can see that the function of the woman is not merely procreation. In other words, don't leave here saying, Tave said, the only reason women are here is to have babies. That's not the only function of a woman. It's not just merely procreation. It is to complement man whose purpose together is procreation. It is to complement man. This is not women to use women as a tool or a means. This is women and, woman and man on the same team for a common purpose, each having a part. And we'll discuss that later. So let's return, though, to Romans 1.27. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Paul says, because of all of this, mankind has begun to act, and that word there, not convenient, is unbecoming. They become, they're unbecoming. And then he lists all the inconvenient or the unbecoming characteristics of a fallen society. And it's quite the list. Look what he says. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, and pay attention to this one without natural affection. The idea here is literally to be hard-hearted to your kindred. This is when a person ignores or rebels against their natural tendency to care and nurture 
for their children. Unless we think this is, what, this is something Paul was witness to and warned about in the decadent city of Rome, he tells Timothy that in the last days when perilous times will come, that men will be lovers of their own selves, and that in his list there, he includes there, without natural affection. A telltale sign of a de degenerate society is when that society no longer provides love, care, and support, protection to their offspring. Currently, what should be in place, what should be a place of refuge, the mother's womb, in the United States specifically, is anything but safe, where one in five pregnancies, that's almost 25%, end in a willful abortion. But let's finish his list. We'll see that in addition to without natural affection, other signs of reprobation are implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So I use verse 31 for the title of our lecture this evening, without natural affection. Pro-choice, pro-life, or pro-birth. This past December, the United States Supreme Court agreed to hear oral arguments in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This specific litigation has the potential to be a landmark case that for the first time in almost 30 years will challenge the almost 40-year precedent set by Roe v. Wade. In a minute here, I'm going to let Mary Reichert, a legal correspondent for World News Group and a host of the Legal po Docket podcast, I'm going to let her explain the significance of what happened on December 1st, 2021, when the Supreme Court heard the oral arguments of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's going to be about a 12-minute clip of Legal Docket aired on December 6, 2021 on the podcast, The World and Everything in It. If you don't listen to that podcast, I highly encourage you to do so. It's a great perspective on news from a Christian worldview. But as you listen, I want you to pick up on some key words and phrases. Words and phrases that are really the linchpin of the arguments for both the pro-life and pro-choice movements. For example, you'll hear, hear the word viability or the time when a child is believed to be capable of living outside of the womb. Julie Reichelman, the lawyer for the abortion facility, Jackson Women's Health Organization, will speak of precedent, and she'll refer to rights of women. You'll hear counsel for the pro-life side refer to the Constitution, and how the Constitution is neither pro-abortion or anti-abortion. Justice Sotomayor will endeavor to address that. But Justice Kavanaugh will double down that the, in the Constitution, or that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion. But it will be Justice Amy Coney Barrett who, in my opinion, will capture the truly Christian worldview for addressing this issue. I encourage you to pay close attention to her question about the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. So let's listen in.
emotions running high outside the Supreme Court last week, Wednesday, the day the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral argument in a direct challenge to the court's abortion precedents. Inside the courtroom, the usual procedure and the usual call to order. We will hear argument this morning in case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The case confronts what the Supreme Court did back in 1973 when it decided Roe versus Wade. The court held that states cannot ban abortion before viability. That is considered the time when a child is capable of living outside the womb. Later in Planned Parenthood v. The court affirmed Roe and added a new standard for courts to determine whether a state abortion law, quote unquote, unduly burdens a woman who seeks to abort prior to viability. A law from Mississippi passed in 2018 now challenges Roe and Casey. It bans abortions after 15 weeks gestation before viability, which is considered to be around 24 weeks. The law has exceptions for the mother's life or fetal abnormality, but it is in direct conflict with court precedent. So Mississippi's only licensed abortion business and one doctor sued to challenge the law. The only legal question here is whether that law is unconstitutional. Three lawyers argued the case. We'll hear from all three of them, but begin first with Scott Stewart. Stewart argued on behalf of Mississippi in defense of its law and against abortion. Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. Later, abortion facility lawyer Julie Rickleman argued against Mississippi. Mississippi's ban on abortion two months before viability is flatly unconstitutional under decades of precedent. Mississippi asks the court to dismantle this precedent and allow states to force women to remain pregnant and give birth against their will. Rickleman gave three reasons why the court shouldn't overturn Roe and Casey. One, stare decisis, meaning stand by things already decided. Two, those decisions prevent the state from commandeering a woman's body to carry a child to term. And three, eliminating or reducing the right to abortion will propel women backwards. Two generations have now relied on this right, and one out of every four women makes the decision to end a pregnancy. Rickleman said this pre-viability abortion ban hurts the poor and the ignorant, those who can't afford contraception or don't even recognize they are pregnant. A third lawyer who also argued against the abortion law, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, on behalf of the federal government. She warned of severe consequences should the court overrule Roe and Casey. Nearly half of the states already have or are expected to enact bans on abortion at all stages of pregnancy, many without exceptions for rape or incest. Women who are unable to travel hundreds of miles to gain access to legal abortion will be required to continue with their pregnancies and give birth with profound effects on their bodies, their health, and the course of their lives. Some debate centered around what is or is not in the Constitution. Justice Sonia Sotomayor waved aside Mississippi's argument that abortion is not in there. She references a case from 1803 called Marbury v. Madison. Counsel, there's so much that's not in the Constitution including the fact that we have the last word, Marbury versus Madison. There is not anything in the Constitution that says 
that the court, the Supreme Court, is the last word on what the Constitution means. It was totally novel at that time. And yet what the court did was reason from the structure of the Constitution that that's what was intended. And Justice Stephen Breyer wondered about harm to the court itself if it overturns precedent. To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to re-examine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. Yet, as other justices pointed out, the court has overturned many other bad decisions. Justice Brett Kavanaugh listed several of them, including Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. That decision said separate but equal education for black and white students did not violate the Constitution. And then, 58 years later in Brown v. Board of Education, the court said it did. Listen to his exchange with Rickleman, lawyer for the abortion facility. Why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality and uh, not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't? Because of the view that a previous precedent is wrong, Your Honor, has never been enough for this court to overrule. And it Rickleman went on to say that a special justification is needed to overturn precedent. Just being wrong is not enough. Here, Mississippi hasn't mentioned any special justification. Justice Kavanaugh clarified a point made by Stewart for Mississippi. The Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that To require the Supreme Court to pick sides in such a contentious social debate is the core problem, he said. Justice Samuel Alito first brought up the unborn person's interest in having a life, and that that interest doesn't change from pre-viable to post-viable. But Rickleman grounded her argument almost wholly in precedent. Perhaps she understood she cannot convince certain justices that unborn life isn't worthy of protection. So she emphasized how women have come to rely on Roe and Casey, and that has not changed over the past half century. For Justice Sonia Sotomayor, one thing that has changed is who sits on the Supreme Court. She aimed this observation at her fellow justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. Stewart, for Mississippi, answered that if the court doesn't want to look political, it should stay constitutional in its decisions. Starry decisis analysis cannot honestly apply here because one of the analytical factors is that the case law is workable. But, he argued, Roe and Casey have not worked. Nobody even knows what undue burden means. Stewart also brought up medical knowledge and advancements in understanding the lives of the unborn. Justice Sotomayor. What are the advancements in medicine? I think it's an advancement in in knowledge and concern about such things as fetal pain, what we know the child is doing and looks like and is fully human from a very early... In a gross minority of doctors who believe fetal pain exists before 24, 25 weeks, it's a huge minority and one not well-founded in science at all. So I don't see how that really adds anything to the discussion. Justice Sotomayor said this is really just a religious debate. 
And then she compared the unborn to brain-dead people. There's about 40% of dead people who, if you touch their feet, the foot will recoil. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that a response uh, by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness. Surmising about fetal sensation or the court's legitimacy didn't appear to sway the other justices. Legal doctrine captured their interest, such as whether viability is a legitimate legal line to draw. Chief Justice John Roberts. So viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. Um, uh, But if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? Another side note about gestational time. Washington Post fact-checkers concluded in 2017 that the United States is one of only seven countries that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Those countries include North Korea, China, Vietnam, Canada, Singapore, and the Netherlands. Chief Justice Roberts cast about for a way to uphold both Roe and Mississippi's 15-week ban, but that did not seem to attract a majority of justices, and to do so would gut Roe's viability line anyway. To my mind, Justice Amy Coney Barrett had the most novel take. She acknowledged that an unwanted pregnancy infringes on a woman's bodily autonomy. But that's of limited duration, nine months of pregnancy versus the decades-long obligations of parenting. Barrett points to safe haven laws in every state that prevent parents from landing into legal trouble for voluntarily giving up a newborn. What are these laws? Well, basically, they're drop boxes for babies. Parents who can't handle the burden of parenthood can abandon their responsibility legally so long as they place the child into one of these safe havens. So it it seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities, it's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to Because, me Rickleman answered, pregnancy makes unique demands on women and their ability to work. And then her legal counterpart, Prelogger, went further as to what women don't want. Not being forced to continue with a pregnancy, not being forced to endure childbirth, and to have a child out in the world. And the states That was a new one for me, that a woman may not want to have a child out in the world. Prelogger, for the government, warned that if the court throws out these precedents, other rights could be undone, like contraceptive use and same-sex marriage. Those decisions also came about under the analysis under the right to privacy, words you will not find in the text of the Constitution. But Stewart for Mississippi assured the court that those decisions are not the same. National Review noted that progressives have changed their arguments over time. Under Roe, it was the right to privacy. Under Casey, it was personal autonomy. And now in Dobbs, it's equality under the law for women to be able to participate in the workplace on equal footing with men. But this idea that we force women to remain pregnant is an odd one. It's the nature of a biological process at work, much like digestion. You eat, you digest. No coercion is involved in it, doing what bodies are designed to do. Mississippi needs five votes to win. And even if it does, abortion won't necessarily end across the nation. The matter is more likely to return to the individual states. Some states will protect abortion up to the moment of birth. 
Other states will protect the unborn down to the moment of conception. The nine justices are only human as well, and they will be under enormous pressure over the next several months. And that's this week's Legal Docket. I hope that was helpful. So what you just heard is the legal arguments for what could potentially be the unraveling of Roe v. Wade. And I think it's good for us to hear the actual voices of the Supreme Court justices. So often we forget about the role that they play in our republic. But what you have heard are only arguments. Now to be sure, there are certainly legal arguments for why sweeping abortion rights such were mandated by Roe v. Wade, are incompatible with our republic. And I think it is interesting to, to think about what the lasting legacy of President Trump what would be, and if his only legacy was that he nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the bench. How ironic that the landmark decision propping abortion up for the past 40-some years could potentially be demolished during the presidency, representing perhaps one of the most progressive parties in our nation's history. But this evening, I would like to prepare us for what might be coming over the horizon. In a sense, if Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which I will abbreviate to just Dobbs, if Dobbs renders a decision that de facto overturns Roe, then the church needs to be prepared for what's coming. The issue with abortion will not be over. In fact, it will go from being an all-encompassing national fight to 50 separate fights at the state level. For it will be individual states who will have to determine the legality of abortion in their state. You will have some states who already have laws that are ready to trigger, that say, very much like the state law in Mississippi, who say, hey, we're, we're going to uh, protect the unborn. In fact, if you were following the news, they mentioned that there were seven other countries who have these laws, the United States being one of them. Just this past Monday, Colombia joined them and now has abortion legal in the country of Colombia, up through 24 weeks. But we're going to see the fight at the state level. The Commonwealth of Virginia will have to determine what abortion means in, this, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So the battle for the lives of the unborn is not going to be solved by Dobbs. That decision might alter the battle space, but it will not be total victory for those who believe abortion to be a national evil. But we have for so long placed our confidence in the decisions of the Supreme Court. The psalmist wrote, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. So this evening, we're going to consider what the Bible has to say, and I hope that what we discuss this evening will be applicable to believers, whether or not Dobbs gives a favorable opinion. Do we want to see Roe struck down? Certainly. But our hope cannot be in judicial determination for what is moral behavior. Let me return to the Psalms to demonstrate this. The psalmist wrote in 20 verses 6 through 9, Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. 
They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. Let the king hear us when we call. We have the word of God from his holy heaven, and so we must, we must turn to it if we're going to remember the name of the Lord our God and trust him to save us from the scourge of abortion. Now, I think right here I'll provide a working de definition of that word, abortion. I'll use that word through throughout the evening, but to avoid confusion or the what about isms, you should know what I'm talking about. First, I'm not talking about those pregnancies that are terminated without intervention through what the medical field would call a spontaneous abortion. I want to be very sensitive here. Even that definition, though medical, is a tough one. Certainly there are several who might be listening this evening who have experienced the profound loss of miscarriage. Kendall and I can speak from experience regarding the pain. As I know, so can many of you. So when I use the term abortion, I'm not speaking to this medical definition. But what I am talking about is the willful termination of a pregnancy, or what is called induced abortion. So I will use this common definition, and when you hear me say abortion from this point forward, you should also, it should be your frame of reference. It is the willful termination of a pregnancy, induced abortion, or what we'll call having an abortion. So let's look at this issue of abortion. This issue of abortion in our nation, and let us consider maybe a change in how we as Christians are approaching this contemporary theological issue. That should be our first consideration right there. We need to return to handling abortion as a theological issue. It's not a political issue. It is a moral issue. It is a moral issue because it is theological. Abortion is not a political issue. It is first and foremost a theological issue. The way we view abortion, or even the lackadaisical attitude we might take towards it, says something about how we view our God. I'm going to say something very strong here. You cannot advocate for abortion, for the killing of the innocents, and still claim to adhere to the tenets of Christianity. Amen. What I mean is, there is a very blatant hypocrisy to say you love your neighbor, to claim you keep his commandments, to hold that man is created in the image of God in church on Sundays, and yet in the marketplace of ideas, you hold no such sentiments if the neighbor, the command, or the image is not applied to the unborn. Now, I need to pause here and make something very clear. I do equivocate pro-life with a Christian worldview. I don't apologize for that. I do not see any biblical evidence for advocating the murder of children. Now, you might be thinking, well, what about incest? Or what about rape? Or what about the health of the mother? Or what about the uh, uh, fetal deformity? I really do wish we could take the time to handle each of those individually. But we don't have that kind of time. But I'll say this. According to a 2004 survey conducted by 
the Guttmacher Institute, that anonymously surveyed 1,209 post-abortive women from nine different countries, or I'm sorry, from nine different abortion clinics across the country. The results were very interesting. Marilyn, I've, I've lost control of this again. Can you go to that first slide with the percentages? There you go. Look at this. Less than 0.5% of abortions are victims of rape. 3% have fetal health problems. 4%, and we are, we're moving up in our percentage, have physical health problems. 4% would get the abortion because the child would interfere with education or a career. Not mature enough to raise a child, 7%. 8% don't have an abortion because they don't want to be a single mother. Look where our big numbers are. Done having children, cannot afford a baby, not ready for a child. Now, we could say, well, what is the other? Okay, so maybe there's a horrible reason that caused the pregnancy, and that's the other. So the, on, the going in argument that abortion is justified due to rape and incest is not backed up, at least by this survey. Look at those large categories. Those are societal issues that can be addressed through different means, not through abortion. We just have to view man as God views man. This is the overarching claim on what the Bible says about the child in the womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect. And in the book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. Here's what Ecclesiastes says. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones, of that bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Job, thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, Yet thou dost destroy me. Remember, I beseech thee, that thou hast made me as the clay. It's tremendous rejection of scriptural doctrine to advocate for any sort of abortion. I know this is a tough place to stand. There are some tremendous circumstances, some heinous acts that humans subject each other to, some grotesque things we are capable of. But even in all of these, if a human life is created, it has to be viewed as the embodiment of the image of God. And thus comes with that image all the advantages and honors of being afforded such a position in God's creation. So I find it theologically contradictory for a Christian to be anything but pro-life. And it is just as egregious for a Christian to vote in such a way or support a political candidate 
who represents a political party that advocates the killing of children. Now you might say, wait, wait, no one is perfect. You might even ask, do you agree with every political candidate, with everything a politician says? No. Those are valid questions, though. You're right. No one's perfect. And no, I don't agree with everything a politician says or even does. But I do think that this issue separates politicians. Now, we can disagree over taxes. We can argue about fiscal responsibility or irresponsibility. We can debate those things that guarantee national security of when or should we ever go to war. But can we disagree? Can we argue or debate the taking of innocent life? Should not there be some sort of red lines for Christians? If so, where do we draw those lines? Not every politician is perfect, and some are guilty from some incredibly wicked behavior. And lest I cast my judgment on them, I know also the sins I've committed and the wicked things I have done. But it's when wickedness affects others, which my wickedness has also done. It's when it affects others, someone has once said that that is the definition of evil. Can Christians in good conscience willfully participate in evil? This is exactly what Paul warned about in Romans. We read the verse already when he said that there were those who were guilty of unrighteousness, but they are just as guilty as those who had pleasure in them that do them. I do place the issue of abortion in our voting record as perhaps the most substantial issue in our contemporary time. And to help us with this, let's quickly consider how we must capture the abortion debate as a theological issue and not a political issue. I mentioned a few minutes ago that there are three things that a Christian can be hypocritical about. They are love your neighbor, keeping your God's commandments, and holding that man is created in the image of God. These are the three theological beliefs that, if understood biblically, will help us to view abortion through a theological lens. Now, I will give us, if it, this is going to give us the world, Christian worldview that we must have, but we are going to look at them in the reverse order of what I gave them. The first thing we're going to look at is Imago Dei, the idea of the image of God. One of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible is found in Genesis 1.27, which we've already read. But it bears reading again. This passage gives the meaning and dignity to human life. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. The theological term here is imago Dei, the Latin for the image of God. This right here should be adequate enough reason to oppose abortion. Humanity bears the image of God, and as image bearers, we are the only component of creation then that has redemptive value. Our redemption comes when God, with the price of the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, redeems us back to him. That image was marred in the fall, but it can be redeemed, and it is worthy of redemption. That's not just me arrogantly declaring my value or my worth. But a God who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Man 
is redeemable. And he is redeemable because he was created in the image of God. And God has an interest in restoring his image in us. It was this Imago Dei that served as the reason for God's commandment to Noah when he left the ark. God said to Noah, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast I will require it. And at the hand of man, and at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God, why do you place such a priority on man's life? For in the image of God, God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. But this verse brings out the second theological truth. In fact... We see it in the Genesis passage. We see all three of these theological truths we'll look at. The first we see is that we are created in the image of God. But the second theological truth is we, are, we see the command by God in verse 7 to be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. How can mankind fulfill this responsibility if it purposely and willfully murders their offspring? Certainly there are other ways in which humanity is violating this command. Abortion is not the only rebellion we perpetrate against the sovereign God of the universe. Nevertheless, abortion seems to be our national sin. It certainly places us in the top ten nations of the world performing the most abortions. To be in the top ten nations of the world who are murdering their own children not only makes us guilty of the command to multiply, but it shows our third theological truth that we are rebelling against God's command while we perpetrate crime against our fellow man. You cannot condone abortion and hold a biblical understanding of the prohibition of murder. This is our third theological reason. Not only are we created in the image of God, because we bear that image, we are then to respect it, we are to recognize it, and we are to protect it in others. This is the basis for placing a requirement on the blood of man. If, a man. if an animal sheds a man's blood, the man's blood will be required of that animal. If a man sheds another man's blood, the slain man's blood will be required of the man who took his life. This principle is foundational to the command of Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. This word kill is murder. It's to murder. It's to slay. It is the word used to imply premeditation. It implies violent, unauthorized killing. It is included in the list of crimes in Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, where God is appalled with the nation of Israel. Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Numbers 35 uses the word repeatedly to refer to acts of homicide. Abortion is incompatible with a Christian worldview because divine revelation has commanded us to honor the sanctity of human life. The first duty of loving your neighbor is to respect their life. And this brings us to the fourth theological issue a Christian must have with abortion. The Christian cannot advocate abortion and still love their neighbor. 
Do you remember Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus was talking about, well, he was talking to a young lawyer, and the lawyer asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Remember Jesus' response? He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. But of course, you remember Jesus didn't stop there. He said, in verse 39, And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he put the clinching statement on this. He said, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There's a lot packed in there. First, we see there are two great commandments. And according to Jesus, they are equal in their greatness. You should love God and love your neighbor. What does John say in 1 John? If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So we see that these two commands, loving God and loving your neighbor, have equal standing. But secondly, we see that keeping these two commandments actually enable us to keep the entire law. What was Jesus telling the lawyer? He was telling them that if you love God, you'll not put any other God before him. If you love God, you'll not be interested in graven you'll not be interested in worshiping a graven image. If you love God, you'll not be, take his name in vain. If you love God, you'll remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor and you'll honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor and you will not steal. Love your neighbor and you won't commit adultery or covet. Love your neighbor, and you'll not want to kill them. This is why Paul tells the church in 1 Timothy, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. It is a paradox for a Christian to support abortion. You simply cannot love your God and love your neighbor and want your neighbor killed. And the unborn is our neighbor, our most vulnerable innocent neighbor. So we must not consider abortion a political issue. It is first and foremost a theological issue. It is theological because it violates the sanctity of human life and destroying the image of God. The command to be fruitful and multiply and the command to not murder and the command to love our neighbor. Christians cannot keep these orthodox doctrines while advocating for abortion. This is the second thing, though, that we need to understand. Because Christians have neglected theology, there's no longer any objectivity in the terms used to describe each side of the debate. This is the logical conclusion of subjective theology that denies the authority of Scripture. We ignore the Bible's theological constructs, and we are left with cultural, culture defining the terms for us. But Christians need to reclaim some terms. We can start with the term pro-choice and pro-life. Both of these put obvious spins on their respective positions. But these are not always opposing positions. Just because someone is pro-life does not mean that they are against choice. And just because someone is pro-choice does not necessarily mean they are against life. No, everyone who is pro-choice is against, uh, not everyone who is pro-choice or against life, and not all pro-life or against choice. But we do find some satisfaction at screaming at each other from different sides of the issues while being ineffective in making our voices heard.
The problem with the pro-choice, pro-life terms is that both place the emphasis strictly on the time the child is in the womb. The arguments are built around nine months of gestation. Though this is when the child is most vulnerable, and it is what delineates abortion inside the womb from murder outside the womb, pro-life and pro-choice terms are very short-sighted. Let us consider the short-sightedness of those who are pro-choice. In 2002, the Feminist Women's Health Center provided these definitions of pro-choice. And since pro-choice can run the spectrum from anyone who believes abortion to be a moral alternative for any woman to those who may find abortion immoral but would not impose that morality on anyone else, the idea of pro-choice runs across a wide spectrum. But I think we could find that most would agree with the following description of what it means to be pro-choice as given by the Feminist Women's Health Center. To be pro-choice is to support self-determination, to make decisions free from judgment. Pro-choice is the responsibility to yourself and the freedom to decide to take control of your own life process. Pro-choice is not just about reproduction, but the freedom to decide your life course with the support and respect of others. It represents power and pride in self. We feel pro-choice is a complex process. It's not just about abortion, but about birth control or having a child. It's about all reproductive choices. Planned Parenthood defines pro-choice this way. Generally, people who identify as pro-choice believe that everyone has the basic human right to decide when and whether to have children. So the Feminist Women's Health Center and Planned Parenthood generally define pro-choice as more than just a right to choose to abort a child. It's the ability to be autonomous. It is the right to self-determination. Someone, someone else described being pro-choice as a, uh, a pro-choice advocate, as one who believes the following. Could you go to that next slide there for me? The right of a person to have an abortion. Notice that there is no real consensus as to when this should or should not occur, except that it can happen sometime between conception and birth. It's the right for a person to continue a pregnancy. It's the right to a safe, legal, and easily accessible abortion. It's the right to a team of medical personnel, that's doctors, midwives, or, or even no medical personnel at all, that a person would like present at the birth. The right to be administered medicine or to abstain from drugs or during birth. It's the right to give birth wherever a person chooses, the hospital, a home, etc. And it's the right to have a child by a means of their choosing, whether through in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, adoption, etc., now, maybe these choices aren't necessarily wrong or bad. Maybe they might even be, some of them are good. Perhaps right might be too much of a step, but for sure we want to access, have access to medicine. We want access to good doctors, nurses, midwives, etc. And if a woman would like an epidural, who am I to say that that shouldn't happen? If such medication is available, sure, the woman should have the right to choose to have one or not for that matter. The problem with this list is that it views choice as a menu. A woman can choose to be pregnant. A woman can choose to take medication. A woman can choose to end the pregnancy. Choices all around. This is an incoherent position. It ignores ontological arguments of causation, namely that to every cause there is an effect. 
What that effect is might not be known. It might even be unknown or unknowable. But to claim that choice can be claimed at any time is untenable. From a very early age, we learn that with varying degrees of probability, consequences from, come from physical acts and omissions. So if you do something, something else flows from that. Likewise, when you fail to do something, something flows from that. So if a woman chooses to have a baby, there are consequences to that action. And if a woman chooses not to have a child, there are consequences to those actions or inaction as well. But from the pro-choice argument, even after that choice was made, then there are thousands of other choices that can still be made, each within its own vacuum. But in order for this argument to withstand scrutiny and just to demonstrate that there is a universal law of causation, let's for the sake of argument say that the woman is going to make a choice and the choice she makes is she is not going to have a child. So you've got this woman, woman A, has decided I am not going to have a child. Does a woman who chooses not to have a child have the choice then to have an epidural? Can she choose to have good medicine and great doctors and good medical staff to assist her in not having this child? Can she choose to abort the child that she does not have? While this may seem silly, you say, where are you going with that? It makes no sense. Exactly. The point is that choices are not independent features on a menu because not everything is actually a choice. Or more specifically, not every choice is a reality simply because I choose it to be so. In my example, the choice to give birth or abort a baby was not available to woman A because the baby in question does not exist. So at some level, I think we can agree that there are some choices that are simply not available to us no matter how much we desire them to be available. Woman A can stand here and hope beyond hope that she actually has a baby. But she made the decision not to. She can hope beyond hope that that epidural works. It will. You will have no pain in having this non-existent child. If certain choices can theoretically not exist or, as we say, are off the table because of other choices we made, then it stands to reason that some choices claimed by the pro-choice advocates might not actually be choices that can be made. At least in theory. That's all I'm asking for right now is it's a theory. The possibility that not every choice perceived to exist actually exists. Can we continue with the silliness of argument that all choices are available to me? Could I choose to have a child? Can I choose to have an epidural for the child that I want to have? Can I choose good medication to help in the prenatal care of the child that I chose to have? Now we're being unreasonable. And that is what a completely pro-choice stance gets to us. It's irrational. I hope we can all acknowledge that no matter how pro-choice we might be, there are some limitations to all of our choices. 
Mine is anatomy and physiology. And dare I say it, there are even moral and ethical considerations that limit our choices that we believe we have. Pro-choice has its limitations, and if it can be limited, then it begs the question, where are the choices limited, and who has the authority to limit those? This is why Christians should have a much longer view than just getting legislation or judicial opinions to side with a pro-life agenda. We need a culture that is so disgusted with killing the unborn it is so distasteful that it would be just as silly, just as ludicrous to choose to abort a child that does exist as it would be to abort a child that does not exist. But many of those who claim to be pro-choice actually prefer the term pro-abortion. This came to the forefront in the conversation last December when 11 months into President Biden's administration, the progressives in the Democratic Party began voicing their concern that the president does not address abortion enough. In fact, he never uses the term. There is even a website committed to tracking how often the president uses that word abortion. www.didbidensayabortionyet.org tracks that it had been, been more than 200 days that he refuses to use or say the word abortion. The president has yet to make a public statement himself about where he stands on abortion. We can debate the reason the president has. He claims to be a devout Catholic, and the Catholic Church has taken a very strong pro-life stand. In fact, for the president to advocate abortion does risk his excommunication. Regardless of his reasons, the pro-choice advocates do not prefer pro-choice. In fact, they are more and more preferring the term pro-abortion and even more so the term pro-reproductive rights. Meanwhile, those that are pro-abortion like to claim that those advocating pro-life are just anti-abortion. And in reality, this is true. But in assigning these terms, they are trying to shape the narrative. But pro-life, we do the same thing. The pro-life position is also replete with its own contradictions. Are those who claim to be pro-life really just anti-abortion? I think many of the progressive side might actually be calling this one correctly. Just as those who are pro-choice seem to be expanding their perspective to move beyond the nine months of gestation, that is, they claim not only to be about aborting the child, it seems the pro-life movement is narrowing its perspective only to the nine months in the womb. But Christians must resist this narrow focus and endeavor to be truly pro-life, and not just pro-birth. We must move beyond simply hoping children reach their birthday. There's a Benedictine Catholic nun, Joan Chichester, who describes how the church has approached the abortion issue since, uh, for the past 40 plus years. Could I get her? It's her big photo there. There you go. This is her statement. I do not believe that just because you're opposed to abortion, that that makes you pro-life. In fact, I think in many cases your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. And why would I think that you don't? Because you don't want any tax money to go there. That's not pro-life. That's pro-birth. We need a much broader conversation on what the morality of pro-life is. There are several issues I have with this nun in saying what she says, and I'm not going to defend Christians, though, with the proverbial, nuh-uh, 
or, yeah, well, you're a communist because you want all this money to go to them. In fact, Joan is in complete disagreement with her own church, but I think we should carefully consider what she's saying. On the other side of the debate, there are those who are claiming they are reaching out to the poor and needy, and they make it sound so wholesome. Words like reproductive rights, as if reproducing is a right. The laws of nature are not guarantors of that right. But these words just roll off the tongue like pro-choice and autonomy. Noble endeavors for sure. But consider how John Stone Street, the director of the Colson Center, describes the current approach to abortion. In a podcast a few weeks ago, he made this telling statement. There has been no greater example of white supremacy in American culture over the last 30 years than a primarily white, progressive sexual revolution ideology pushing abortion on a minority population. It goes back to the very early days of Planned Parenthood. There's been no greater threat to the African-American population in America than abortion. The abortion movement was built on a racialized understanding of eugenics, and that legacy has gone, hasn't gone anywhere. There's no greater example of systemic racism in America than Planned Parenthood. Why? They do it under the guise of reproductive rights. His assessment is staggering. But let's return to Joan's statement. She's accusing pro-lifers of just being pro-birth. And I'm afraid she might be correct because Christians have neglected theology. Christians have lost the moral high ground in the abortion debate. We have lost this moral high ground because we, the church, have forfeited our responsibility and we've given it over to the government. Look again at what Joan said. Your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. It is the church's responsibility and not the government to feed, clothe, and house children. How did James put it? Pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. According to the survey I showed earlier, 8% of mothers abort their child because they do not want to be a single mother. But our churches are not taking in these children who are fatherless. Instead, we claim moral superiority and we shame the teenage mother for her promiscuity. We have had independent fundamental Baptist churches whisk the unwed mother away in the middle of the night, forcing them to go live somewhere else so that we don't see them or we're not embarrassed by their pregnancy. Shame on us. We should practice pure religion and visit these fatherless children in their affliction. Not tell them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, we do not give them those things which are needful for the body. But Jesus said, suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In another passage, he said, it is better for a millstone to be hung around the neck and to be cast into the ocean than to offend one of these little ones. Does Jesus love the little children? All the children of the world, the red, yellow, black, and white, are they all precious in his sight? Does he even love the ones who have yet to come out of the womb? Does he love the child who is carrying a child? Of course he does. He said to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. While certainly Jeremiah had a specific mission, the principle is still true for us. He knows us before we're born. How did Horton the elephant put it in Horton Here's a Who? A person's a person, no matter how small. So why aren't churches leading the way in taking care of these children, providing for unwed mothers, for poor mothers, for worn-out mothers, 
immature mothers with avenues to help raise them, help them raise their children. Churches should be leading the way in running adoption agencies and foster care. Christians should be adopting children, wanting to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But our churches and Christians have branded the scarlet A on so many young women long before they ever darken the doors in an abortion clinic. Because churches have not done their ministry and have forfeited their responsibility to the government, we've lost the moral high ground in the abortion debate. So Jonah's right. We are just pro-birth. Maybe we could call ourselves just anti-abortion. We're not pro-life. If we were, we would find ways to minister to those who need to be warmed and filled and need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I'm not talking about the social gospel here. I'm saying it's both and. We need to provide for their physical needs, and we need to share the gospel with them. Abortion has gripped our nation. It's our national sin. We need to realize that abortion is not a political issue. It is first and foremost a theological one. We need to stop neglecting theology, and we need to reclaim objectivity in the terms used to describe each side of the debate. And we need to regain the moral high ground in the marketplace of ideas. But as long as our society is bent on destroying the creation of God, we will continue to ignore the function of the creation, male and female, which will be the topic of our lecture next week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.